0: Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22nd, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Hello, welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Arts Commission. And each week at this time on MPB, we come to you with an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. Uh, we talk to writers, musicians, artists... Uh, and people in their community who help promote the arts and and get the word about about arts and creativity in their community today we're going to be talking about arts and literature and the writing life with Michael Ferris Smith who's joined us hey Mike how are you doing
1: hey Larry thank you it's nice to be here
0: so you are a very busy man you've got you've you've just released your fourth book just mm-hmm. just published and you're just heading out on the road here uh, uh the fighter is the name of the new book it's just come out um tell us a little bit about uh, just a little bit about the book, start off. Well, The Fighter is actually, it's set in the Mississippi
1: Delta, which is new for me. Uh, I'm from South Mississippi, so um, my earlier work has been um, set first in the Gulf Coast and then in Pike County for Desperation Road. Um, but I've spent some time over in the Delta the last few years getting really to know the the owners of uh, Turn Row Books and Greenwood. And then my wife and I have you know, going back and forth to Clarksdale and hit some juke joints, and I don't know. I just became really intrigued by just the landscape and the people and everything, so, you know, I don't know when I had the idea for Jack Boucher, the main character, um, 40-something-year-old guy who was in a lot of physical pain, and I started to try to figure out, well, why might he be, and just being a fighter just popped into my head, but I didn't want him to be a a boxer. You know, I wasn't trying to recreate Rocky Balboa, Um, and I wanted it to be really intense and really tough, so I thought, let's make him a bare knuckle fighter, and let's make him an illegal cage fighter, more or less, and he he really snowballed for me right off the bat, much in the same way when I had the idea for rivers and the storms in the Gulf Coast, how that landscape, I mean, it was just like, I couldn't stop the creation of it. It just came so fast on me. Jack really came to me pretty quickly, too, because I went from his pain to what he would probably dealing with mentally and emotionally. I mean, you think of someone who's lived that life and fought like that for 20 years, two decades, um, the possible concussions and brain damage he might have. And then it was pretty easy for me, you know, hearing and reading about all the CTE studies from the NFL about memory loss. And so I imagine here's a guy, his body's broken down physically. I mean, it hurts him every time he moves. His chunks of his memory are, are flaking away because he would have never treated any concussions, you know, he would have just kept going. And then like, you know, immediately, how does he deal with it? And the opioid epidemic is very real in this country. And I thought, well, he's probably going to be eating pain pills as often as he can and the effects of that on your body and on your mind. And I just knew he was a guy I really wanted to follow around and figure out what had brought him to this. And when I dreamed him up, I thought, well, now is the perfect time to use the Delta you know, he, he, he's going into the Delta and why, I'll figure it out later. But that was just the whole impulse of the novel and just went dove right into it and could not wait to get started and start figuring out who he was and start writing that wonderful landscape of the Mississippi Delta too.
0: Now you were, you're the son of a minister, right? Right. And so you, and I think you spent some you kind of traveled around as a kid, or you, you guys moved around some? Yeah, when I was a kid, like I think most um, young pastor families, we moved around a good
1: bit. It was um, largely in South Mississippi, little town to little town. We did a brief stint in Georgia, too. My dad's actually from Georgia. My mom's from Tyler Town. Um, but we, we bounced around a lot. Um, by the time I was about 11, I think, we settled in Magnolia and were there for four or five years, and then we moved up the road to Macomb. But that stint in Magnolia was pretty much the longest time I'd have ever like been in one place even after high school and going to college I mean after college I started just bouncing around too so um I think that that moving around which honestly never really bothered me as a kid you know um I got to the point where I almost liked it I like being the new kid I like the new faces I just kind of liked that essence of the unknown um but that restlessness kind of stirred in me, and it kept on through adulthood. And I think th- that really fed me too, writing Jack Boucher in this novel, because he's got a lot of those same kind of things going on with him.
0: Yeah, I was wondering about that. He he was a he was a um, an abandoned baby who yeah. kind of goes around a, a little bit different circumstances. You know, right? He had no choice in going from foster home to foster home.
1: Right, and you know, I think. One of my favorite lines in the novel is like, I think in the prologue, you know, like maybe page two, when he's this child that shows up to his fo- the, finally, the foster mother that he's gonna develop the relationship with and truly the only person that ever, you know, loves him and gives him, you know, what any child needs. And this child who was um, uncertain of where he came, both of where he came from and where he was going. And I think probably in the course of my life, I've, I've been very similar to that. Because writing came to me very later, a lot later too, you know. I was just a kind of a drifter, you know, for lack of a better term, for a long time.
0: Now you did stint uh, uh, playing baseball, right, down in community college. Yeah, is that I played, was that what you wanted to be when you were a little kid? Oh kind yeah, of, thing? of course. I was gonna yeah. be
1: a you know, major league shortstop and but you know we play this was back in the day when you played whatever was in season. It's not wasn't all specialized like it is now. Um, so I was a ball player growing up, um, as a teenager. It's all I really cared about or thought about, um play baseball for two years at Southwest. And, you know, everybody comes to that point where you either go pro and keep going or you just can't play anymore. And I just hit that can't play anymore um, stage. And I'll admit, like, I didn't really know what to do. Um, when you've, you've done something like that, you know, I started playing ball, you know, when you're big enough to run around and catch it and when you're five, six years old. And that's all you do to your 21. I mean, that's 15 year haul of just being an athlete. And then when it was over, you know, I was never really that good of a student. I didn't really try that hard in school, and I was lo- I was kind of lost. I mean, I was really just, I ended up, you know, I think I set out a semester, and I ended up going to state just really on a whim. Like, I had two buddies there, and I think I was bored one night where I, sitting in Macomb, and I just hopped in my car and drove up to see what they were doing in Startville. And like a month later, I said, well, I'll just go to state. I mean, it was just like that un- unthought um so, yeah, that, that was kind of a big moment for me when ball playing was over. Um, and I think it kind of l- l- lended itself to me not really knowing what I wanted to do because that had really been all I'd done up until that point.
0: You're listening to the Arts Hour on MPV and today we're talking with Michael Ferris-Smith. His new book is The Fighter. It's just come out on uh, Little Brown, I believe. Yeah. Really nice cover, by the way. I love the man. It's beautiful. The the, uh, the uh, it's kind of like an old. Well, I guess that's the. It's like an old uh, show poster. The the, it the, is. the hand type kind of thing. Kind of getting back to the. It's very cool. promotion and you know like uh, Jack Boucher doing these that's like right. small town gig kind of things, right?
1: In fact, when they showed me the first um, cover, that that port that shot of the Delta there is actually. Um, courtesy of the artist, um, photographer Bruce West, that was hanging in the Ogden Museum of Southern Art in New Orleans. I don't know how Little Brown came across it. But it didn't have all those stars and squiggly lines like you see on fight posters and I made that suggestion, you know, why don't you we go back and look at some old, you know, posters. And so they added all that and I've just you know, I it's a great looking cover, you know, it's I know really, it's my book, but it's really striking. I've just been stunned by it from the moment they showed it to me.
0: And Bruce West, by the way, past guest here on the Arts Hour. Is he, that right? He uh, has a book out on University Press about um, Margaret's Grocery, the famous oh, kind yeah. of vernacular art site in Vicksburg. He did mm. a lot of photography over the years. Yeah. I went back, I was trying to figure, is this the same guy? And it sure was. It sure so, was yeah. yeah. And he was great
1: about it. He was very cooperative, and he emailed me about it, you know, after it was all done, and we've exchanged some
0: messages. So, yeah, I love his eye, obviously, and it looks great with the book. Excellent. And so... So you you kind of stumbled through the the college years, but it wasn't until kind of later into your twenties and that that you really kind of you know latched on to writing and reading, right?
1: Yeah, it was um, when I, I graduated from state. I was twenty four and just I really think you know me graduated the day I graduated from college. It might have been the one of the most depressing days of my life because I just didn't have a clue. I didn't have anything lined up. I was working part-time at a liquor store. I mean, I had nothing going on, and I couldn't really see anything on the horizon. I moved out to Dallas to hang out with some friends, and um, honest to God, I met a guy in a bar one night in Dallas who worked for the NBA. And the NBA had just opened their first international office in Geneva, Switzerland with the idea of promoting basketball and making, trying to make basketball an international game, which they have done fabulously. They were going to do a traveling outdoor basketball festival around Western Europe where they would just go set up tents and courts in these streets in these European cities and just, get kid, just to get kids to come out and play and be exposed to basketball. And this guy was in charge of hiring a road crew, um, that would follow the trucks around, like be a roadie, and, you know, and unload the equipment, set up the event. When the event was over, load it back into the trucks. The trucks would take off and drive to wherever was next, and we just would meet them at the next place. And this was back before the days of you know, cell phones or anything like that. And I remember I wrote my number on a cocktail napkin and gave it to him. When he said, would you be interested? I'm like, of course I would be interested. And I never expected to hear from him. And then like three months later, I was on a plane, to Geneva, Switzerland and uh, I was literally from one weekend to the next in places like Berlin, London, Paris, Rome, Athens, Copenhagen, I mean so forth and so on. We did like a 25 or 30 city tour. So that was like the next three years of my life and in the off-season we had apartments um, where we would go and hang out and get ready for the next tour. Um, What happened was I started reading as entertainment to fill up the time, and I I told you I wasn't a very good student, and I never, like, read for entertainment before. I mean, if somebody pointed at me and said, read this, I I would read it for an assignment or whatever, but because I didn't know any better and didn't know who to read, I started going for the names anybody who went to high school would know. Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, Flannery O'Connor, Charles Dickens. And I started reading while I was sitting in the cafes or riding on the trains or sitting in my apartment. Um, And I don't know, something just started to move in me. Um, I mean, it turns out those are some pretty good writers to read, too. You know, (laughs) I was not lacking for enthusiasm for what I was reading, which Mm -hmm. is very important. And, you know, we got to the end of like our third year there. uh, Adidas didn't want to re-up the event. They didn't want to sponsor it anymore. So we basically got canned and I didn't really have any options. I mean, the company, had NBA had moved to Paris by that point. Um, So I could have stayed and been like a grunt working without a visa guy in Paris. Or, you know, I could come back to the States and go back and work for the same event in the States. I was just really burned out on it. I wasn't interested in it. And I don't know why the thought crossed my mind. Because I was 28, 29 years old. I thought, I'll go back to Mississippi and I'll try to write. And it was just as simple and naive and dumb as it it sounds (laughs) because I had no idea what that meant, what it was going to take and so forth and so on. But that was the plan. And in some crazy roundabout way, that moving to Europe was, I look at it as the beginning of my writing life, even though I wasn't writing it then, but I was just reading and something was happening inside me.
0: That's amazing. And so when you got back, did you just get the notebook out and try to write your novel? That's pretty much the way I did it, yeah. yeah. I got my notebook out, and um,
1: I realized pretty quickly how challenging it was um, to write, not just like a novel, but re- like a paragraph or a good sentence, you know? Um, and I realized real quickly how far you have to come. Um, so I knew I needed like a community that it would really help me to um, be involved or be around writers or people trying it so This is another really dumb luck part of my existence is I applied to the Center for Writers at Southern Miss. And I had about 2.4 GPA from Mississippi State. I had bombed the GRE because the woman I'm currently married to now had kept me out all night the night before I took it. Of course. I'm passing that plane. And I really had no writing samples. Um, But I was at my parents' house in McGee, Mississippi. I mean, I had gone from Paris to McGee, Mississippi, and I was in culture shock and I had to get out of the house. I borrowed my dad's truck. Instead of mailing in my application, I just drove down to Hattiesburg and I walked up into the English department. And I walked into the office at the center for writers and sat down with Ree Fortenberry who was the administrative assistant there. And I just started talking to her about who I was, what I'd been doing, why I was interested and I just really want to try. And I guess it worked because somehow they they let me in and it just began from there.
0: How about that? Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> my uh,
1: stupidity has been a great asset, and in some my, persistence in the course there. Of my we're
0: back on the Arts Hour. Our guest today is Michael Ferris Smith. He's got a new book out called "The Fighter." Um, and, and when we were first talking, you were talking about kind of the, the the genesis of this book starts with with the main character, Jack Boucher. Like that was your the first idea, right? right? Right. And so how did how did the Delta come into it? How did you how did you pick the Delta as your as your landscape? I knew that Jack's
1: problems were going to be involved with some really probably isolated kinds of people, and maybe even some really some really deep and dark kind of settings and things. And the isolation of the Delta, I think, lended itself to me. Um, big Mama Sweet, the the one he owes the money, who's in, he he's in big trouble with, and even like his relationship with Mary Ann, the foster mother he comes to live with, and her big house out on these acres of land. I thought it really coincided with I thought the isolation he felt personally and emotionally and I really love it when the landscape kind of blends together and works with what the characters are doing or who they are and uh I guess it was just a very good marriage on that aspect and I needed some I needed some dark and empty like places that, you know, these things could go down, these fights could go down and even um, just like his boyhood, it could evolve kind of, even though he's with someone who who is loving to him and tender to him and taking care of him, when you're, you know, the only child essentially, and you're living out on a couple hundred acres and you're out, you know, away from everything, you're going to spend a lot of time alone. Um, and that helped too. I mean, just the whole landscape worked really well with the story I was trying to tell.
0: Yeah. And I, I think one of the interesting, I think you have a really great uh, touch with writing about working people. And I mean, there's a lot of people who can, you know, these types of characters are very, you know, very um, attractive for someone to write, but it it is a, it takes a very fine touch to uh, not have the fiction kind of looking down on the person and and, and kind of being along for the ride, but not kind of, you know, have that, you know, down the nose kind of thing.
1: Right. Yeah. I've been asked about that a lot. And I think it's just a, you know, the kind of people I grew up around. And, like, my grandfather um, was a, you know, worked on a construction crew. He was a painter. um, And then he farmed in the evenings. But I used to work with him in the summertime, be on one of his little cleanup crews um, on a job site or I painted, you know, some buildings with him. And so I was just around it a lot. I was around these voices and around these people. And I think it's also just the kind of, you know, friends I had and just acquaintances I had and... um. I don't know if roots is the right word, but it's just the voices in my head. And, and it's the people I notice and the people I still am friends with and the people I still root for. And, um, you know, so I, I, I'm very flattered to, you know, when someone does say that I'm just presenting them in a very honest way because I think that's very important about writing any character. Um, but particularly maybe, in a, like you said, I think it, people don't necessarily know sometimes what they're writing about. Well kind of cliche things. And it is kind of looking down your nose at them. And that's the last thing I would ever want to do.
0: And you have some, some characters who could be very easily cl- cliched, you know, the old fighter, mm-hmm. the, uh, the young woman with all the tat, the, the tattooed lady, you know, <laughs> yeah. the carnival, uh, uh, manager, you know, these are kind of in some ways almost tropes, but you kind yeah. of get behind that and, yeah. and open it up for us and see what their, what, what's their interior life. That's kind of the
1: fun thing about it, you know, for me. And I think, you know, I got it's good to remember sometimes when you're sitting down and trying to write fiction that it is supposed to be fun. But to take a character who on the outside, you know, if they walk in the room, everybody makes assumptions about them. But to really take that character and get into who they are and create their own world and their own desires and their own spirits and their own wants and hopes and failures and fears, I mean, I think that any time you do that, you're likely to get away from those stereotypes and cliches. You know, I learned a long time ago, any character that walks into your novel, you have to treat them like a real person, if they're major character, minor character, whatever. I mean, because we all have our own hopes, dreams, desires, anxieties. Um, so when I began treating like everyone like that, I think that's when your cliche breaks away and your stereotype breaks away because, you know, deep down...
0: None of us are really, you know, cliches when all the wool's pulled off. Yeah, and the other interesting thing I see in and there's lots of really great stuff in the book. But um, Jack Boucher, the main character, so he's he's this kind of at the end of his rope fighter. He's and you're talking about all the the um, poundings he's taken, and mm-hmm. and that kind of you're kind of working through the idea of and he seems to be always searching for who he is, right? But then it's also like parts of him are like. Falling away, yeah, like quite literally, like his his brain is kind of, you know. So there's this literate, there's like kind of literary, kind of combined with with the physical. Yeah,
1: yeah, you know, like when I said he came alive for me real quick, like that first chapter when we meet him, he's trucking down the highway and he's got. I mean, I remember I gave him that note. He carries around a notebook where he keeps notes to himself because one of the things that was really scary for me about him in just terms of like being worried for my own character, was that he realizes his mind is going away and he's preparing for it. And you think about being, you know, in the middle of your life and realizing what's coming for you and what is already there on some level. And so he's got this notebook where that he carries around where he writes down people, names of people he should avoid, names of people that are okay to approach, places not to go, you know, where he's got a bad rep and it wouldn't be good for him and I mean, he was kind of heartbreaking to me right off the bat, um, just kind of, and all of the stuff he would have been dealing with, you know, and some of it brought on himself, and some of it not necessarily. Um, but he was, um, he was at risk from the beginning, and I always love characters who are at risk from the
0: beginning anyway because they have to make, start making decisions right away. So he's he's not a boxer, he's not a wrestler, he's kind of in this other world yeah. of like. It's kind of like MMA is what I was getting out of it. I don't mm-hmm. know. How did you kind of come up with that kind of world? Was that something you knew about or was that something you kind of researched to kind of create this uh, alternative fighting kind of
1: uh, uh, yeah
0: thing that he was involved in? Well,
1: I guess MMA was kind of the impulse with it. Um, I didn't really research. Um, I just I didn't want anything sanctioned. You know, I didn't want anything that um, was clean and official. Um, I wanted him to really come from this underworld of fighting and survival um, because I think it takes a very special kind of person to get involved and to stay in that world, um, whether you're trapped or whether you get some type of weird adrenaline rush from it or whatever, and that made me really want to explore him. Um, you know, I've been asked already, you know, where is this place out in the Delta? And my answer is, like, if I knew where it was, I wouldn't tell you. Anyway, you know, I wanted it to be dark and I wanted it to be. Uh, I wanted him to come from this world that was truly unforgiving, you know, but he put himself into it. But now that he realizes it was a bad choice, you know, what does he do? Um, it was just a, an instance of taking kind of what I had seen and then using my imagination to just really go another few steps with it.
0: Um, uh, Marianne, who's like his um step, uh foster mother who kind of protector in his teen years and she's kind of f- fading physically through the book so a lot of it is kind of looking back um uh in time he's thinking back in in, in the scenes that she's in mm-hmm. but one of the one thing that was interesting is she was an artist yeah and that uh and i was wondering was there an impulse in terms of having her be this, uh, like, a potter and that he kind of gets involved in that but doesn't seem to kind of, I guess, capture him at all.
1: Right. I think I did want her to do something with her hands. Um, And she just seemed kind of like this really organic human being to me, too, who would be willing to take in a foster child and love him without regard for anything else. And part of that is based on her own experiences and what she's learned in her life and experienced in her life. But then this notion of her you know, sitting at the potter's wheel and teaching this boy who has, you know, been just bounced around all over the place and then kind of showing him this thing to do. And then it is art. And someone pointed out to me um, in one of my first interviews how, what a nice touch they thought it was that she shows him to pick it up when you're done, when you've created something that's yours to put your mark on it. You know, she puts her M on the bottom of, of everything she does and I think for me it was just ways of her teaching him things without teaching him things. You know, as parents, we like to do that all the time. We like to try to teach our kids lessons without them know they're getting a lesson, you know, whether it be in, in empathy or in, in whatever it would be. And I think that was part of their relationship. I really wanted her to be involved with, with creating something and showing him that you can have a part of this world um, even on this very simple level, you know, and you can make something that lasts or that other people recognize, whether it be in like a, an actual tangible thing you can pick up or whether it be in your behaviors or just an example you are to someone else or being a friend to someone else, too. She, I like that they would sit out there and she would teach him how to work and what to do and the lesson she's kind of giving him without being overt about it because, you know, he was the kind of kid, he wasn't interested in hearing any kind of lesson after the things he'd, you know, kind of been through, and she knows how to, how to kind of get to him.
0: Right, right. Another kind of, I guess I would say, flavor of the book is, is, is music, and there are musicians that kind of pop into different scenes, and mm-hmm. music is part of some of the kind of building the tension in some of the spaces. So talk about kind of your, your interest in, in maybe in blues in particular, or the mm-hmm. music of the Delta, and how you decided to kind of weave it in.
1: Yeah, there was no way I could write a novel set in the Delta and not have a couple of blues musicians, you know, in and out. Um, the thing about the blues that I think is so great, and it makes it so great, and it's a reason we'll always have people listening to it now to a thousand years from now or whenever, um, is those blues musicians, they are just about all about that song and that moment. And there is, and these little songs that seem so simple, if you looked at them on a chord chart, you know, they would look so simple, but they are filled with heartbreak and love, and they are filled with twists and turns, and they're all little stories within themselves, but, you know, none of those guys ever did it for the money, you know, and you can, you know, go through the Delta now and find people playing on back porches um, or in these little juke joints and this and that and the other, and they're not doing it for the money, they just do it because, you know, they love it. They love it, and so that's why blues has always kind of been good for me to listen to because I can be I can be reminded in listening. You know, to one of our really any of our great blues musicians or blues men or blues women, I can be reminded in that song like kind of what I do is what it's really all about when you get back down to the bare knuckles of it. Um, sorry the sorry about the fighting pun there. Um, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it's about sitting down and truly loving what you do. Giving it everything you got, just putting guts and heart and courage into it, and that's what I get when I listen to the blues, you know. And I've pl- I've played music, and that's you know, it kind of feeds me. It always has um. The rhythm of language and the melodies, and just you know. You can listen to a three or four minute song, and you can be really moved emotionally. And it can remind you of parts of your life, or people, or something someone said. I mean, it can be an entire world wrapped up in that song. And so I, I did. And in, in a story like, like Jacks and Marianne's, I, I really wanted the inf- to. I wanted the people who read the book to still see those glimpses of of the Delta music that's played. It's such a huge impact in the entire you know music world.
0: Yeah, and the informality of it and how oh, you just yeah. kind of come across. It's not its not this big stage thing. It's just you happen to walk in and there's that's somebody who right. happened to do it.
1: It's nothing perfect about it, which, you know, I've said many times, <laughs> I've started to say, um, you know, when I write a novel, I'm not trying to be perfect. I'm just trying to be great, you know, and I think that's a good lesson for any artist of any walk of life. You're not, I mean, perfection is boring to me, you know, it's shiny and it's neat and everything's right where it's supposed to be. And, I don't know that perfection is even really great, you know. And when you listen to the blues or when you're, you read a book that moves you um, or you see a band or you, you see a sculpture or something and it grabs you, it's not perfect, it's just great. And I think, you know, that's what I'm shooting for. I'm not trying to be perfect. I'm just trying to knock
0: your socks off. We're back for our final segment on the Arts Hour today, and our guest is Michael Ferris Smith. His brand new book is called *The Fighter*. Just came out. This is your fourth book, right? That's right. Yeah. You've been working pretty good. I had a pretty good clip. It seems like I know. That's the fourth one
1: since 2011. So what's that? Seven years. It's weird. You go forever, and you can't get anybody to publish your work or return your emails or anything. You just build up rejection after rejection after rejection, and a lot of times you just need that one break and. You know, I got that one break, and um, it it obviously encouraged me. And I've been fortunate to have ideas that I was in love with, too, the last, you know, five or six years. And to me, I swear I think that's 90% of it, is having an idea that you love. Because if you love it, then you're going to chase it, and you're going to sit down, and you're excited to go to it. It's not a drudge, you know. So I think the right idea has a lot to do with it. And I've been fortunate to have the right ideas for me over the past, you know, six or seven years.
0: And is another idea already come? Are you, are yeah, you on to has, something else?
1: Actually. Yeah, I uh, turned in a manuscript um, a couple of weeks ago. I was really hoping to get done with a draft of something before the book tour stuff came up cuz okay. you get really separated, you know. I, it would be a couple of months work lost and I would hate I hate I didn't want to get that close to the end of a novel and then have to walk away from it for a couple of months. Um, so yeah, A story I loved and I was excited about writing. So, um, it kind of wrote itself, you know, for me in the last couple of months. Um, so I was put a period on that draft, you know, there's still work to be done, but I'm where I want to
0: be with it. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Every, the last couple of years of the, sta- the Mississippi Book Festival, we, on, on this show, we've done some highlights from that. And one of the sessions that we, we pulled from, from last year's show was the Remembering Larry Brown session that right. you were part of. And really enjoyed kind of your, your remembrances of him and, and kind of the impact. And I was hoping you could just talk a little bit about him in terms of how he,
1: mm-hmm. how
0: he impacted you as a, as a young writer.
1: Yeah. uh, First of all, that was such an honor to be asked to be on that panel. I mean, I remember telling my wife, I feel like this is like that moment I've been waiting on my entire writing life where it just everything that you go through seems worth it. I mean, when they asked me to be part of that, Um, you know, lapping back around to me um, being abroad and decided I wanted to write. um, A lot of that had to do with um, when I was home for Europe. One time I was in Oxford and I walked over to Square Books and I picked up two books. One was a short story collection, Big Bad Love by Larry Brown and the novella Ray um, by Barry Hanna. And I just swallowed them whole and I loved them. And I, you know, until that time I had been reading a lot of the, you know, more classic, classical mid century stuff. Um, This spoke to me, particularly Larry's work in a way. I just, I mean, it was like a hammer, you know, hit me in the side of the head because I recognized the people in his stories I recognized what they were going through. I recognized the landscape. And it immediately occurred to me, like, if you want to write, you have plenty to write about. Um, Then what I started doing is reading, obviously, all of Larry's work, but then looking up interviews with him. And I've always been been a big proponent of reading interviews of other writers, musicians, whatever. And when when I read that he was 29 years old when he decided to start and that he had worked a bunch of odd jobs and he just falling in love with this idea and he was going to try it and he was going to do it and he wasn't going to stop until he had done it, that really spoke to me. And it it made me feel like I wasn't strange for being at that stage in my life and thinking this is what I want to do. And like suddenly feeling this weird passion to chase this thing that had been very foreign to me until recently. I found so much camaraderie in not only his work, but in his attitudes and the struggles he went through to break through, and his work ethic—I mean, it—it it really changed me in a big way. Did you ever get to meet him in person? He, no, he passed away before I actually broke through um, to where I would have a chance, where I would feel comfortable in walking up to him and saying thanks. But I tell you what has been really interesting as I've become friends with his son Shane, who, who I actually met last year. He was at the um, he was at the panel last year, and afterward, Shane stopped me and spoke with me, and we've got to become buddies, and, you know, I've gone out to Tula and ridden around and drank a couple beers with him, and he's taken me to Larry's writing cabin. I mean, Shane has really, like, let me behind the door, so to speak, and showed me some of Larry's unpublished work, and, I mean, it's just been incredible, and I've met Larry's um, wife, Mary Ann, um, so it's it's really strange to me how life can be sometimes, how one th- you know, me walking in square books 20-whatever years ago, I think that was... 21 years ago when I picked up that book, and then now to be friends with his son and to, you know, walk into Larry's writing cabin and just sit there and, you know, watch the sun go down. I mean, it's just very, it was very surreal being out
0: there for me. Um, And they're all so kind and giving, you know. Yeah. And kind of, you've moved to Oxford in the last year, and I I would imagine there's kind of the, the, Larry Brown's touches are kind of almost everywhere in that town as well, right? They are. I mean, just about you meet you meet so many people
1: who knew him, um, and just always talk about what such a good guy he was, and just how kind of how humble he was, and kind of how giving he was too. And um, and I'll tell you the other thing that's been very rewarding for me is I've had a lot of those same people say to me like they see, like the, his influence in my work, and they're like you know, happy that I have seemed to be at least trying to carry, you know, the torch. And, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's, it kind of breaks me down every time someone approaches me and talks to me like that. And the people at Square Books, you know, Richard and Lynn and all those people at the bookstore there who knew Larry and loved Larry and experienced his, um, him cutting his teeth and then becoming a success. And for for me to be friends with them now and them to be just big supporters of my work, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, Every time I'd go by the store, you know, drive by it or go in or whatever, it's just a very rewarding
0: experience to be kind of part of that. Now, you're listening to the Arts Hour, and our guest today is Michael Ferris Smith, and he's here. We're talking about his new book, The Fighter, that's just come out. Um, In addition, you know, just kind of switching gears real quick, I was looking at your uh, kind of your your tour schedule, your book tour schedule, as it were, and there's some appearances in France, and I was just, and I I think you've gotten some uh awards or some notice in France for the past books. I'm just curious about how that how did that come about or what do you know anything about kind of how that germinated <laughs> it's, it's really interesting yeah. that you know I have that's a very good
1: you. publisher in France and okay. the UK also um Sonatine is my publisher in France and they've done Rivers and Desperation Road now and they're doing The Fighter also but um um yeah Desperation Road has really gotten some attention there um it just came out last year The Fighter won't be out there until next year I've always kind of known that for some reason, Mississippian Southern writers kind of resonate with the French readers. Um, so I just kind of attribute it to that. Um, and so, you know, this year I've been in, invited to come over and having lo- loving France and having spent time there. And I was like, yes, I'd love to come back. And then pretty soon I got another, I'm going back, in, I'm going in April and then I'm going again in September. Um, and I'm also going to Switzerland. Um, in September, just above Geneva. Now, that's really going to be surreal. I haven't been to Geneva since I left originally, where, like I said, I feel like that's my, where my writing life began, oh, sitting wow. there and reading. And uh-huh. So this is going to be really something for me in September. Um, again, very flattering and very excited. It's a weird-looking book tour because I just got back from Australia um, oh,
0: okay. a yeah. week
1: or two ago at the, from Adelaide at the Adelaide Literary Festival which was phenomenal so it's like if you look at my events it's Australia Mississippi yeah, France, France and then you know come back and do some Southeast stuff and then it's you know France again eventually and I'm gonna go to London also and kind of in between in September I'll be'll it'll be like Paris and London and then um, north of Geneva a little bit so I mean you know why not if they, if they invite me and they want me and they're loving my work I'll get on a plane.
0: Well, speaking of the blues musicians uh, earlier, you kind of have a similar uh, tour schedule. There's a lot of guys who who play the local clubs and then they go play the festivals in Europe during the summer. That's right. You know, and I've sat at those festivals too and always been
1: surprised like, hey, that's a, I've heard of him, you know, when I was living over there, which is always
0: nice to get a touch of home when you're so far away from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, One of the, uh, you know, it's been really interesting really in the last couple of years, um, we've been doing the show for a while, so we get pitched writers and, and like right now I have like three or four books on my, on my, uh, desk at the office, all Mississippi writers, you yeah. know, with c- pretty high profile books coming out. Yours, Michael Cardo's, Chris mm-hmm. Offutt. There's just, mm-hmm. we talked to jesmine Ward last, uh, last fall. It's yeah. just, uh. It's it's a, it's been really amazing just to see this really huge flowering of just people creating a lot of work in the last you know people yeah. based here in Mississippi. Not of course we've had the the expatriates for many years right, you know that, right. that have gone on, but but to have so many people in state who are creating quality work and I, I'm wondering if you've uh, what are your thoughts about that, or is it just kind of like some kind of I think thing it's phenomenal. World, I know. think it's great. I remember around. 2013, when Rivers came out, you could
1: see like the beginnings of that happening, and I thought, man, this is cool. You know, I really want to be a part of this. I mean, it's helped to encourage me and kind of keep my fire burning too. To know that there's like this new generation of Mississippi writers that are really coming on strong. You know, and you know, we lost a lot of great writers over the over the recent years. We lost Larry Brown and Barry Hannah and Miss Welty passed away. And Willie Morris passed away. I mean, we have lost so many. And there was kind of a quiet time in there. And there was a gap in there. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's when we were all writing and our voices were maturing and evolving. And we were building off these writer, you know, Mississippi writers who had influenced us. And now to see kind of the, I guess, the torch passed. I hate to, you know, use a cliche like that. But to be part of that is just wonderful. A friend of mine who lives in Texas called me last year and uh, he jokingly kind of made the same observation and he called it the Magnolia Renaissance. And I'm like, what a great name. Somebody should kind of use that for what's going on. But um, it's exciting, you know, and I love seeing what everybody's doing
0: and I love being a part of it. And it probably pushes your game too, because you see these people in their book after book coming yeah. out and, you know, you got to be up. good, man. Yeah, And
1: you got to work too. I mean, that's the thing I've, Learned years ago man if you want it to happen you better sit down in the chair and get to it because you can think about writing all day long and it won't move that manuscript any, any further ahead you know i was in greenwood last night and you know there was someone there in the q and a asking me about you know what do you do um, to get going and i said you go sit down in the chair and you start typing and there's really i mean it sounds so simple but i mean you have to do it I mean, it's action. It's not daydreaming. It's getting your daydream on the page, I guess, more or less. But um, And so, yeah, this Magnolia Renaissance, I'll go ahead and coin the term while we're sitting here. here, um, is good because you have to be good to keep up, and you want to keep up. Like, I want to be a part of what's going on, and I like being in that conversation of what's going on. It's very rewarding and exciting for me.
0: Great. And now coming up uh, this summer, there's a, a writer's conference that's going to happen up in Oxford that you're part of. And I was hoping you could talk just a little bit about that. The Yacht Shop is what it's called. And um,
1: I really don't know a lot about it other than they asked me to lead some workshops. And I said, yeah, because they were like, it involves some readings and some parties. And I'm like, well, you had me right there. I'm good. Uh, <laughs> I think it is a good opportunity. you to pay me too. Huh? Yeah. And they're <laughs> going to pay me too, which is even better. It's like uh, the trifecta. Um, yeah. I think it's really cool, though, because it's a weekend of, you know, you get to people who sign up for the conference will, you know, get to do workshops with like me and some other writers. So if you're aspiring, I think that's good to do, to go and spend some time around other writers, because I needed to be around other writers and I needed to have them look at my work and I needed to begin to speak the language of writing to help push
0: me along. Um, so, yeah, it, it'll be fun and I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Um I remember uh, uh, doing an interview with Tom Franklin a few years back, and we were talking about living in Oxford, and he was saying the, the hazard of, you know, Oxford is great, but the hazard of Oxford is that there's all these writers who come in, yeah, and they always want to be, let's go out for drinks. Let's <laughs> <That's get." laughs> and it's like, I need to go home and work. You know? I know. So, it, right.
1: I think it was Barry Hanna's famous quote about it was, he said, you can get a lot of good writing done in, in this town if you can stay out of the bars, you mm-hmm. know. And that's true. And I, I'll admit, like, in the first few months of us living there, you can get, call somebody or somebody can call you pretty much any day of the week if you want a, a buddy to go to the bar. Or you can walk up in City Grocery pretty much any night, and there's somebody there um, in this kind of literary world or artistic world that you can saddle up with. But, you know, my wife tends to frown on that. And uh, she and I have come up with some babysitters, though, in recent weeks on recent months. So we're getting to enjoy the town a little more, but it is is a danger. Brad Watson also talked to me about that too before, about how his time in Oxford was spent not writing, but avoiding writing
0: while partaking with others who were also supposed to be writing, but weren't. (laughs) And and you've got the people who are not living there, but are coming through and your old buddy and hey, don't you want to hang out? Absolutely. There's always that too. Well, I encourage everyone to go check out the the fighter. It's out now, and Mm -hmm. it's uh, in all the good bookstores, I'm sure. And you're going to probably see about half of those on your on your trips around here. Absolutely, Uh, Mississippi's so full of great indie bookstores. I love going and visit them. That's great. Well, let's thanks again uh, for coming in, Michael. We really appreciate it. Uh, If you've tuned in late and you'd like to. Listen back uh, to the show or share it with a friend. You can go to the MPB website, mpbonline.org. They post all our past shows. There are streaming files. Or you can go onto iTunes and download it to your phone or however else you listen to podcasts. Until next time, we'll be...